I'm Sylvia Burgos Tofnes, and this is Deep Roots Radio. Every week, my guests help us connect the dots between what we eat and how it's grown because every single food dollar we spend either protects or degrades the environment, produces foods with high nutrition or empty calories, and either helps pay a fair wage or keeps farm workers among the working poor. We get to make that choice every time we push a cart through the grocery store, visit the farmer's market, and eat at a restaurant. I hope you enjoy this interview. When you think of farmer, or or when you imagine that lots of the population thinks of farmer, what's the image that comes to mind? Well, usually it's the stalwart uh, guy with the uh, seed corn cap on and uh, a big four-wheel drive pickup truck. You know, I think you're right. And that, I think, tends to be the image that is still prevalent across the United States of America. Sure. But certainly it is not reflective of who farmers are in the world Mm -hmm. or in the U.S. Um, And we have someone here with us on the line this morning who's going to help us not only understand what the real image of farmers are, but what they can be. But let me just go on for just a second. Let me just mention that most of the farmers in the world are women Ah. and have always been women. Hmm. The men were the hunters and the women were the cultivators in many instances and Mm -hmm. the gatherers. Yet the profile of women farmers in the United States and in so many parts of the world has been very, very low. And in fact, the the woman as farmer has been nearly invisible. Why Mm -hmm. is that? And why does it all of a sudden seem that women farmers are kind of... Um, emerging from the corners mm-hmm. and out of the dark. I, is that true? Mm-hmm. And why is it happening? And if you want to be a farmer out there, if there's a woman out there who's saying, you know, but I want to farm, mm-hmm. what are the resources available to you? Mm-hmm. Well, this morning we are very fortunate to have with us a woman I have come to know and admire over the last several years, admire a lot, Alisa Kiverest, who is not only a farmer, but who with her husband, uh, John Avanko operate w- a prize-winning, environmentally-based inn, bed and breakfast in southern Wisconsin. She is also with her farmer, with her farmer husband, and alone a prolific author of books that help us all understand how do we become environmentally sound businesses. And her latest one is Soil Sisters, a toolkit for farming women. Good morning, Lisa. How are you? Hi. Good morning, Sylvia. Great. You know, I am so glad uh, to have you on the on the phone this morning, because when I've gone through your book, and I I just love your book. It was introduced, was it just last week? Yes, yes, hot off the press. <laughs> it is hot off the press. It was introduced and launched at the Organic Farming Conference held annually in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and that's an a uh, very large conference of sustainable and organic farmers that is put on by the Midwest Organic and Sustainable Education Service, a nonprofit that's also based in Wisconsin. And there were over 3,500 people there. So The largest gathering of organic farmers in the known galaxy, as we like to say. That's right. That's <laughs> All right. with spring fever. Yes, in the universe. So, Lisa, Soil Sisters, a toolkit for women farmers. Can you kind of summarize what this book is about, first of all? You bet, Sylvia. As you wisely addressed earlier, it's not a new thing that women are growing food. We've been doing this forever, literally. But it really only is in recent decades 
uh, in, particularly in the United States, that women have been acknowledged for this work and recognized. And parallel that with the growth of the organic industry and the need and demand for more locally raised food, it's a real opportunity for women to blossom in number, and that's what you see. However, still, basically just about everything in the agricultural industry, even in small-scale sustainable ag, is designed for men, be it ergonomically or be it philosophically. So there's a lot of needs for women farmers, particularly beginning women farmers, and there was no resources. As I've learned now working with Moses for eight years on our Rural Women's Project, where I'm proud to say we're the, one of the few grassroots nonprofits that has a year-round program dedicated to women farmers. But I realized more and more that we needed more tangible resources. Plus, women in the organic community are incredibly well-networked and collaborative. We're all about sharing what we learn and supporting each other. So that's really the driving force behind the Soil Sisters book is to provide a forum for women farmers to share what they've learned and help support beginning women farmers. You know, as I was reading through the book, one of the things that struck me, Elisa, is just how easy it is to read. Your language... Oh, I appreciate hearing that. Thank you. Oh, man. It is so approachable. It is so conversational. It is so easy to understand. And you've really, I think, um, organized it in a way that makes it a, a good toolkit. You know, where do you go for land? How do you access loans? Who's done this before so that you don't have to reinvent the wheel? Um, And it is filled with great photos and with profiles of women who um, have been real pioneers in in what it is that they do. You know, Lisa, as you were pulling this book together, were there any surprises for you? It's, it's interesting. It's, it's almost a little, uh, bittersweet may not be the right word, but motivating because while we've come a long way and it's an amazing time to be a woman farmer right now, the process of the book research also made me realize we have a long way to go. Mm. Uh, even though I know you and I live in our, our organic community where things are very rich, particularly in that collaborative spirit, but it isn't always that way when you go to the outside world, or particularly when you go to Washington, D.C. and start talking farm bill and representation of women farmers, we have a lot more doors to knock on for that to happen. But that said, it parallels with growing in number and voice. So while the book focuses primarily on the pragmatics of women farmers, I I hope you sense, too, within all that is still that activist message that we need to, as women farmers, activate our voice and speak for all of us when things like the Farm Bill and different um, policies come up, that we need to represent ourselves. Right. You know, as you were pulling your book together, uh, I suspect um, that your manuscripts or your notes actually added to a whole lot more pages than we ended up getting in this very, very generous book. How did you kind of um, decide to pare down what might be in here? I'm laughing because it's so funny having gone through the, the book writing process several times now. You always start on day one thinking, I'm never going to have enough info. And then you always end up with too much. And that was definitely the case in here, just because there are so many amazing stories of women farmers. And 
a theme throughout the Soul Sisters book, too, is exactly that of innovation. It's not same old, same old farming. It's not cookie cutter, this is what you do, and this is how you do it. It's women taking their passion for healthy food and sustainable agriculture and creating their own vibrancy, their own niches in many ways, their own markets that might not have existed before. So I tried to dial into those stories of innovation in the book, the real uh, interesting women who are doing things differently. But there's also a cross-section of beginning women farmers Mm -hmm. and seasoned women farmers who've been doing this for decades and are our pioneers and heroes in this movement. But uh, I should start working on volume two, Sylvia, because there's a lot more stories we need to get out there, particularly into the media. Appreciate all the work you do to showcase these stories of of women farmers because they're, they're not out there as they should be. You're right. You know, so one of the things you talk about in the early parts of your book is the fact that women farmers, and you've already mentioned it, have had such low visibility in the United States. Um, And part of that has to do with the laws of the land. Um, Women couldn't own anything um, years and years ago. Um, And even if they grew anything and sold it, the proceeds immediately went back to the man on the farm or the man who might be the owner of that farm. And so sometimes that visibility is really tied into public policy, isn't it? Oh, you nailed it, Sylvia. It's all about economics. And that's what shocks a lot of people, particularly younger women in their 20s who grew up in an era where, yeah, there were economic rights, but it was only in the 70s in our lifetime when we were kids, you know, that uh, legally women achieved economic ownership and property rights. So, yeah, to your point, up until then, really, if a woman was widowed or divorced or any of those life normal transitions, she would lose any economic value she had vested in the farm. It all went to the the male head of household or the brother or the uncle or whoever was next in line. So it really wasn't until we were economically recognized that this movement could really move forward um, equitably. So that's fairly recent, and that also stems into discrimination roots within the USDA. Um, There is currently a um, lawsuit settlement, class action lawsuit settlement, on behalf of women farmers and also on behalf of Hispanic farmers, a parallel lawsuit for discrimination in FSA, Farm Service Agency loans. So that would have to do with a woman going to an FSA office and applying for a farm loan and told to come back with her brother. Right. Um, gender discrimination can be hard to prove. Did, was her loan denied because of gender or because maybe she needed to work on her business plan? You know, So it's, it's a complicated history. But that said, um, in my work personally with the USDA and the research for this book, the, the past history has really been embraced and a desire to rectify. And that's where you see all these new programs popping up for both beginning farmers and sometimes dialing into specifics for women farmers to help support what's happening now. And that's, again, as I said before and we'll say again, if you're a woman ever thinking about following your farm dream, now is the time. What's interesting when you look at the statistics of new women farmers is it's being driven by a lot of women in their 40s, women Mm. in midlife, 40s and 50s, who are starting farms for the first time. Many don't even come from agricultural traditional roots or grew up on a farm or grandma's farm, and I myself would fall in that category, but uh, are bringing past experience, past business experience and job 
experiences to the farm. And again, that really fuels the innovation, just like, like in your operation. You had a lot of different life experiences before your farming chapter, and that really enhanced it, I would say. <laughs> it, it really did. And certainly, you know, we, we can take a look at the past, but I think what's really bright is that future. It, it's where we are right now. As you said, now is the time if you're a woman farmer. And certainly this book... Man, it provides so much practical information. I mean, this is a book you can pick up and say, okay, I already am a really good gardener. You know, that's, that's my big hobby. And I think I'd like to be a farmer. But one of the things that you take a look at in this book is what would that mean? What, kind of, what would that mean to go from a hobby to a business? And where would you get the financing? And how do you get access to land? You bet. And you nailed the core issue there, Sylvia, of, of moving from a hobby to a business. And that is really an underpinning of the Soul Sisters book of supporting women in making that transition, which isn't always that easy in that um, there's skill sets to learn from a, anything from a bookkeeping standpoint to a marketing standpoint. But the value is so much better in the sense of both, obviously, the income, but also the recognition of women in the agricultural industry is we need to have some numbers behind us. We need to be viable, successful businesses. And often a comment that comes from women uh, who've always given away their stuff, you know, who've always been giving away their extra tomatoes for forever, and I can't ask those people now to buy them. And I say, sure you can. Mm -hmm. Your friends, your family, your neighbors are going to be your first in line to support you, and um, we'll we'll, we'll champion this. Uh, So that transition is often much easier than folks realize because we all come from communities that are looking for opportunities to help us succeed. Lisa, in in talking to the, oh my goodness, it must have been hundreds of people that you did as you were kind of researching this book. Did you ever find that uh, sometimes women undervalued their their work and the price of of the, the value of what it is that they did as labor and the value of what it is as they produce as product? Sure, sure. I think that probably is indicative of women entrepreneurs in other industries as well. Uh, And we need to take ourselves seriously. And that that obviously in the farming category goes to men as well, where Mm -hmm. we we need to be recognized for that. But that, as I know you and I have talked about many times, goes to the broader movement of our food system and the need to get out of the cheap food system. And as a society, we need to value the price of food. And Uh, need to understand what goes into it. So both women farmers are valuing their product accurately, but we also have a consumer public that understands and is willing to pay a fair price. So uh, things are changing, but it it goes both ways, and we need to value ourselves as producers and take that educational route with our customers, be it at market or our CSA members, on how things were grown, why it took longer, and bottom line, why it's better for both our bodies and the planet. Mm. You know, you talked about education, and that's one of the things that maybe if I was a, a woman contemplating farming, I'd, I'd be saying, you know, I really, really want to do this, but man, there is a world of stuff I don't know. Um, and, and you do begin to give, you give some uh, direction, you know, where to go for information. Could you just mention some of those things? Sure. Well, hands down, women, farmers, go to other women. Actually, the University of Wisconsin did a study a couple years ago, and Sylvia, you and I could have 
saved them some money because we knew the answer to this already. <laughs> they surveyed Wisconsin women farmers from a variety of backgrounds and asked where we go to for information and hands down each other, other farmers. Mm-hmm. And that really is a core principle behind the Moses Rural Women's Project and a lot of the women farmer training you see in the sustainable ag community in particular of creating forums for women to share, uh, be it a literal circle of chairs in the backyard of the farm or a potluck setting or whatever it may be to come together and and share there. Um, But but also, too, even though with this University of Wisconsin list, further down on the list were more traditional sources of information like Farm Service Agency and Extension, it's real important for women farmers to reconnect with those agencies. And often we surprise ourselves. There's many stories in the book of women who've had incredible um, opportunities working with their local extension. And in many cases, their extension learned along with them. There's a Mm. woman in the book, um, Kathy Thornton in North Carolina. Uh, She's a mid-career woman from Chicago with a financial background. And she and her family decided to get out to the farm and start this chapter of their life and move there. And they decided to grow strawberries, organic strawberries in a U-pick situation. And called her extension office for some help, and nobody there knew anything about organic strawberries, but they said, hey, we're going to learn with you. And together they tapped into a lot of resources. So it's important to hit both of those uh, options when it comes to resources. The other thing I want to mention is a question that often comes up amongst women farmers, particularly beginning women farmers, is sort of like, well, what grants are there for Mm. women starting a farm? And while I wish I could say quickly, oh, go go shake this money tree, <laughs> they're not there in that sense of, like, you want to start a farm, here's some money. However, what is happening, particularly within the farm bill and increasing, I'm optimistic, increasing, I want to increase more, but there are funds going to beginning farmer training, is uh, women are a priority group, so we're classified we used to be classified as um, socially disadvantaged. The USDA renamed us historically underserved. So often when an organization like Moses, for example, receives a grant to do farmer training, there may be a priority for women farmer education. So bottom line, what that boils down to is asking. Whenever you want to go to a conference, even like Moses, or attend a training that has a registration fee to it, ask if there's a scholarship. Mm -hmm. Because there often is. There's that sort of funding that comes a little bit through the back door, if you will. But if you're looking for a farm loan or you need a loan for capital improvement on your farm, that's where you want to knock on your, your local farm service agency, FSA door. Because again, because women have been this historically underrepresented group, when you are a beginning farmer applying for a new farm loan with the FSA, your your application's prioritized, and mm-hmm. it's something to definitely look into and take advantage, particularly if you're a beginning woman farmer with no capital and no credit, but some experience and a darn tight business plan, that's what you, that's a good route to explore. Mm. You know, uh, for those who might be joining us right now, we're, we're having this wonderful conversation with Lisa Kiverest, who is a farmer, prize-winning bed and breakfast innkeeper, author and t- teacher, as well as a really, really strong activist. Um, for her new book, Soil Sisters, a toolkit for women farmers. You know, Lisa, uh, what is a website people can go to if they want to know more about the many things that you're doing? Sure, folks can go at soilsistersbook.com. That's kind of the, the hub for the book, but that will link you to our Moses projects and the Women Food and Ag Network and other resources as well.
Great. And one of the things I guess I want to remind people is that these many different resources and sources that Lisa has uh, mentioned are listed in detail in her book, Soil Sisters, a toolkit for women farmers. So if you're if you weren't able to grab a pen and paper and and uh, gr- and list things and, and write things for yourselves right now, the book is available and it is a wonderful, wonderful resource. You know, Lisa, um, one of the things that you mentioned in the book, and, and certainly uh, it's something I discovered as well, is that sometimes people, women, go into farming thinking, this is the one thing I want to do. How common is it for, for women farmers to kind of change course as they get into farming? Well, it, it's a good question to ask before you get started of what are my ultimate goals, like you would with any business you get into in the sense of, do I see doing this for the next 10 years, 20 years? Do I see this as my sole income source or will I have other income sources as well, et cetera? Um, one thing that I think you, you probably see both amongst women and men farmers is taking on too much too soon or relying too soon on the farm for your sole source of income and uh, burning out. So on that note, to your question again on resources, there's a lot of different opportunity for beginning farmers, period, to really take the time to develop your business plan, be it something like the Farm Beginnings Program with the Land Stewardship Project is excellent. That'll take a year to really look at these issues and draw that out. But, but one theme that really resonates amongst just about all the women in the book is diversification and not literally putting all your eggs in one basket or just doing eggs, for that matter, uh, of having different business elements going on within your farm. That could be different uh, marketing outlets. Maybe you do a CSA, but you also do a farmer's market. Or agritourism. We have a whole section in the book on that. Like dear in my heart of running a bed and breakfast or a farm stay on your place. And we explore the whole new area of cottage food products, and that has to do with state-specific laws that just about every state has one now where you can produce specific non-hazardous foods in your home kitchen for public sale. Things like breads or uh, jams or we do pickles and sauerkraut at our place. So what are multiple smaller income streams that you can generate from your farmstead that really add up to a stronger net income, but I would argue, too, a just stronger quality of life. I think, too, a common theme amongst us women is we like having a lot of things going on. We like having that creativity of different elements supporting each other and flowing back and forth and uh, inspiring each other. So that's a good approach to take as well. You know, Lisa, just so that people understand this, I, I would love you to use yourself as an example of the diversification of your activities and income streams. Sure. So last year, John and I calculated we received over a thousand paychecks. And before you think I'm you know, taking a jet off to Tahiti, most of them were very small. Somebody mm-hmm. bought a book or bought some garlic or stayed a night at the B&B. But there's real strength in that diversification in that when the recession hit, for example, and it eventually caught up with us in that people weren't traveling as much mm. and the B&B income side was down. Well, we could pump up some other things. We could do some more of that value-added stuff and do some different things with our produce. So it's a real um, yin and yang, if you will, from a financial statement perspective in that things will um, support each other. And it also really helps, and this is what um, 
we write about more in our ecopreneuring book and our homemade for sale book, which is more specific on the cottage food businesses. But ecopreneuring goes into how do you manage your business smartly from a sustainable perspective. We can we can talk about sustainability all we want, but if we're not viable as successful businesses, this is all a hobby. And, yeah. and we don't want that. We want to change the world, right? So it has a lot to do with how you um, – manage your books, uh, looking at yourself as a business. And I think this goes back to what you were talking earlier, Sylvia, about hobby, is if you've been doing something for fun all the time, you really need to change your mindset that this is my business. It's fun. It can still be fun. But every time I go into the car and I drive to Farm and Fleet to buy my seeds, I need to track my miles, and I need to get that receipt for the seeds. Do you know? And when mm-hmm. I go to the Moses Conference and I have lunch on the way, I need that receipt. It's just, it's the same as if you ran any small business, but it's even more important when you're a farm because so much of what we do is a part of our business expenses. We need to, uh, as overall, just track them better and get into that mental shift of this is a legitimate expense and I need, I need that receipt. Right. You know, that notion of diversification, I, I guess I, I my understanding is that for most of history, farmers were diversified. And so it wasn't uncommon for the farmer who grew a crop to also, you know, let's say wheat or they, they grew livestock to also be someone who maybe uh, combined hay on contract or who had a hay field and sold hay as well, or operated a wood mill uh, in addition to having, you know, the crops in the field. So that whole idea of, of you only do one thing and that's all you do, that is a more modern idea in all businesses, Totally. And what we're really doing is modeling Mother Nature, right? She doesn't plant just one seed, one acorn doesn't fall from the tree. It's having different things going on. And what's exciting about being on a small-scale farm enterprise is you can try out ideas relatively cost-effectively. You know, you don't need to do a major investment to try out a new crop to see if this, this varietal of tomatoes will sell well at market or make a really good salsa. So there's a real palette for creativity in these enterprises that we need, we need to celebrate and champion. Great. So, uh, Lisa, again, can you give us your website so that people can get to uh, your, your many, many activities, your books, and your, and your inn? Sure. So if you go to the soulsistersbook.com, that will, that will get you everywhere. And particular in, invite this summer with our Moses Rural Women's Project will be kicking off in May. A number of different workshops are in her boots. Workshops are the uh, all-day on-farm workshops on women-owned farms that are great opportunities to see a lot of what I write about in Soul Sisters in Action. So that will be uh, posted up this spring, but look forward to seeing folks seeing you at one of those. That'd be great. I'd love to. I'd love to. And I guess I, I, I just throw this out for anyone out there who is contemplating uh, being going into farming, if you're a woman. Uh, please, as, as Lisa has said, don't be afraid to show up at some of these gatherings. You don't have to say anything. You can just sit there and absorb it. Um, the new person, the new farmer is appreciated. And, and certainly this will help with that whole thing of, you know, being on a farm that's really isolating. That doesn't have to be, does it, Lisa? 
No, it really doesn't. That's what's super powerful about being a beginning woman farmer today is you can skip over that isolation chapter even if there isn't somebody literally next door. The Internet is an amazing tool for connecting and growing those networks. We have a group here locally by me, the Green County Area Women in Sustainable Ag Group, that puts on our annual now Soil Sisters tour every August. Uh, come on come on down for that. But we're a group of over 100 women in still a very industrialized dairy area that get together regularly over some good food and wine. And a lot of businesses and organizations, our Farmers Union chapter has bond office group. So it's there's an opportunity to connect wherever you live. You may need to uh, knock on some doors and, and scratch around a little bit, but there are definitely kindred-spirited women in your community. And just one last question as we wrap up here, Lisa. How much land does a woman need to start farming? You know, it, it varies, and it really, bottom line, doesn't matter. We're on just five acres. There's women doing amazing things on a rooftop in Chicago. Do you know, mm-hmm. it, it, it has to do with your business plan and what, what you can afford, what's available, what you need. But it isn't a size matters in this category at all. It really more so has to do with what your end vision is and what your resources are and where you see things going. But uh, land shouldn't be a limitation. Plus, there's all these new arenas, too, of creative land financing and leasing and all sorts of ways to connect those dots for beginning farmers today. Well, thank you very much. Lisa Kiverest, author of many books, including the very newest one, Soil Sisters, a toolkit for women farmers. I hope you have a good weekend, Lisa. Thank you very much, Sylvia. You too. Okay, bye-bye. Visit my website, bronxtobarn.com, to download this and past interviews, to learn about my farm, and to reserve 100% grass-fed beef. We deliver to Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota. Thanks.